You are now listening to the December 22nd broadcast of the Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, and you are listening to another program in our series, The Attributes of God. Over the last several weeks, we have been studying the incommunicable attributes of God. These attributes that only He has have been many, and today we are going to be studying the final incommunicable attribute, and that is the sovereignty of God. But first, Let's review the ones we have learned so far. First, we studied about God being triune, yet one. Remember the cluster of grapes? Many grapes, but one cluster. Then we learned about transcendent and infinite, how God is beyond our universe, our intelligence, and our understanding, as well as beyond all limits. We also looked at eternal and creator, God has no beginning and no ending, and being the Creator, He created all things, and no one created God. Then we learned the omnis, omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient, which means God is everywhere at once, all-powerful, and all-knowing. We also studied the immutability of God, how He never changes, no matter how much we or the world does and healer, being the great physician who formed us and knows us down to our DNA and beyond. Then last week, we looked at how God, and only God, sanctifies us to be more Christ-like as we learn and grow in God's Word and apply it to our daily living. Now let's take a look at the sovereignty of God. God being sovereign means that God rules the universe and that he is not ruled by anything or anyone. It also means that nothing is beyond God's control. Evil, death, blessings, and relationships all happen within his authority, and as a sovereign God, he provides faithfully for his creatures in general and his people in particular. In the New American Standard Bible, The word sovereign is used only once, but it is alluded to many times throughout the Bible. First, let's see how the author of Psalm 33 talks about the sovereignty of God in verses 8 through 11. He writes, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Now let's read about what God himself says about his sovereignty in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 11. God says, Remember the former things long past, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. I would like to finish our program today with 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 13 through 16, where Paul is encouraging young Timothy to fight the good fight of faith and to pursue righteousness, which I pray encourages you as well. He writes, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, 
and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen indeed. God bless you all. Goodbye.
Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delf and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delf and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Last week, we heard a great conversation on, number one, why we fear exposure of secrets. And number two, what truly happens when we ask for help. And this week, we continue that conversation and we really dive deep into the issue of identity. On today's podcast, we're going to learn three things. Number one, why running away from your identity is a race you'll never win. Number two, why God wants you to be yourself. And number three, we'll ask three specific questions that truly matter about identity. All this material that we're discussing today comes from the book titled Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delf, are the authors of this book. And this podcast is simply an in-depth conversation so that you can apply these principles to your own life. Well, let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk. Identity is huge to me, and people need to know who they are, but they don't know who they are until they know whose they are. Hmm. And once you know whose you are, then you can really start to get that who you are type of thing. Sure. And I remember, you know, Adam and Eve, if we go back to the garden again, what, what did the attempt or the serpent uh, do with Adam and Eve? He challenged their identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he did that by saying, you know, God's lying to you and, and uh, you are really God, but you don't know it yet. And if you just eat of that fruit, then you'll become just like God. And he challenged their, their identity. And we know the results of that, 4,000-plus years of misery. But I'm thinking about the last Adam right now, Jesus Christ. So here we are, Matthew chapter 3. There's an identity statement prophesied, given over Jesus. This is my beloved Son in who I am well pleased. Now, that was identity Hmm. statement. We all have identity statements by God. Hmm. But look at this in chapter 4. The Holy Spirit's going to lead Jesus into the wilderness because we're going to have a little little temptation out there in the wilderness. Now, if you ever feel like you're in the wilderness out there, don't worry. That's a great thing because here's the reason for a wilderness. God wants to talk to you. Mm-hmm. So if you're in that wilderness and you're in that dark spot, that's a great thing. God wants to talk to you. And this is the whole lesson. God talked to him in three different situations. But the first one's one I'd like to focus on. And here comes the tempter, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Do a miracle. I mean, if you're the real Son of God, you're going to show off right now and do a miracle for me. And Jesus just waits. And But notice what he did. He, uh, this was an attack on his identity. If you are the Son of God. We just heard he was the Son of God in the chapter before. And Jesus just waits and answers it. And this, you know, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So that what, God, what Jesus was saying there is, hey, you said something, but I didn't hear God say anything. Hmm. That wasn't God. And then God speaks and says, this is the verse I want you to give the enemy. So, guys, you understand, if Jesus is going to be attacked on his identity, we're going to be attacked on our identity. And if we don't know who we are, if we don't know our identity, we're a worm on a hook again. We've already been through that one time already. But let me just say a few words about, I call it recovering, discovering, recovering, whatever you want to call it, our IP address. That's our identity purpose address. The temptation was to let hunger lead him, not God lead him. And as I said before, you don't know who you are until you know who you are. Running from your identity is a race you can never win. 
the two greatest days in your life are the day you were born and the day you found out why. The best this world can get is you being you with God all over you. I like that one. Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. All right. Uh, see, there, there's only three opinions in life that matter. I want you to listen to these people. What God thinks of you, that's number one. Only three opinions in life matter. Number one, what God thinks of you. Number two, what you think of God after knowing what God thinks of you. And number three, what you think of you after knowing what God thinks of you. Mm. That's a powerful one. Now, the one who's got a big dragon egg, that's going to be taking all their time, all their energy, all their resources, all their attention, focusing on that, not on whose they are and who they are. And here's a great statement. What others think of you is none of your business. Amen. <laughs> All of us could pay attention from the, you know, learn a lesson from the weather. It pays no attention to criticism. So don't pay attention to criticism. You had a purpose before others had an opinion. Whatever and whoever is trying to bring you down destructively is already beneath you. When you find out how much you are worth, you will stop giving discounts. <laughs> I like that one. Know your worth, then add tax. That's even better, okay? If I am says I am, then I am. You attract, and this is so true, you attract uplifting people and uplifting things when you know who you are. Here's the whole Christian experience based upon just three short sentences. Royalty is my identity. Servanthood is my assignment. Intimacy with God is my source. How are you going to do any of those three things if your whole time is met is wasted feeding some dragons? Well, isn't that the truth, though, that we do put lies ahead of our relationship with God? We we put lies ahead of the truth, and so we believe wrong things about us to be true before we'll believe who we the truth about who we are which is who we are in Christ absolutely and I'll just bring I'll just bring this to close and let's talk about this but I, I have what well, you know what's the takeaway here someone will always be prettier somebody will always be smarter somebody will always be younger but they will never be you hmm. and that's so powerful the devil knows your name but calls you by your sin Jesus knows your sin but calls you by the name. Now, I like this one. This is a new Adelphism right here. You are flossom. Flossom. What does that mean? A person, this is a flossom person, a person who knows their flaws but also knows they are awesome. <laughs> All right, so it's okay to be, it's okay to be flossom. And that's this whole idea. That's bringing healing into the equation. Well, and so, the, I mean, the scriptures come to mind that we are the very righteousness of God in Christ. I mean, for most of us, that just is an oxymoron. We, we cannot believe that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. He says that in your weakness, he doesn't say he is made strong. He says, I am made strong. It's like I am made strong in Christ. And so the whole key is we are in Christ. The question is, are we going to believe who he says we are? And, you know, my, my uh, saying to people is just because you don't think you are who God says you are doesn't mean that you aren't who he says you are. So who are you going to believe? You're going to believe the infinite God or you're going to believe finite man? You're going to believe God who slung the universes into orbit that is ever expanding that can't even figure out where it ends <laughs> or I become so great and so big that I determine that oh no poor me yes so woe is me I mean what are we doing but I think that's why practically speaking that's why we have a quiet time that's why we get time with God. That's why Jesus went into the wilderness. He went away from the people, and he went to spend time with his heavenly Father. And that's the voice. You know, his sheep know his voice, and, and he calls them by name. See, it's one thing to believe in Jesus. It's another thing to believe Jesus. <laughs> Mm. It's completely different things. Mm. And so what this, this is, this is calling us into a, uh, 
how do you say, I'm not moved by what I feel, I'm only moved by the word that's real. Right, that's one of the chapters. I think it's yeah. wonderful. And it's, it's just taking us right into that space, and then there's no doubt about it. We go back to the, the idea of no doubt about it. What the, the tempter was trying to do there is get Jesus to doubt who he is, just right after he heard it. I mean, he heard, he heard it the chapter before, and here comes the enemy to, uh, how do you say it, uh, check us out on that one, see if we really got it. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, don't we go through a similar situation to go from a mountaintop experience of, of experiencing God in a, a unique way, and then all of a sudden, just moments later, maybe a day later from a weekend or, or whatever, and it's like, and who do you think you are? And oh, if you, like you said earlier, Polly, if if you were a Christian, would you do this? Or if you were a Christian, would you think that? So it's the same thing that happened to Jesus is, is happening to us in bits and pieces over time Absolutely. as well. Is that right? Well, and, and it's interesting that in the midst of being led by the Spirit into the wilderness, the first thing God does through Jesus is quote Scripture. And so how important is the scripture in our life. I mean, it is sharper than any two-edged sword able to divide between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. And yet, how much worth do we place on that? And yet, if Jesus quoted scripture to the enemy, how much more should we? Uh, Ephesians says, stand firm and you will prevent the enemy from having inroads. And he says, hold up your shield of faith, which is able to quench every fiery dart. It doesn't say some. So how much am I spending time developing that trust and faith in God, the object of my faith, in order to quench and, and extinguish every fiery dart that is raised up against him? Thank you for listening to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. You can visit Dr. Ed Delph at nationstrategy.com. And for Alan and Polly Heller, head over to walkandtalk.org. On the website, you'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book, along with the newly revised application guide. You can also schedule a personal coaching session a one-on-one -on -one counseling session, and register for one of Alan's upcoming webinars. On behalf of Alan, Polly, and Ed, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week.
the voice that calmed the sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me. Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. I am a flower quickly fading, here today and gone tomorrow. A wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. Still you hear me when I'm calling, Lord you catch me when I'm This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999 and email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is an unblemished sacrifice. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. 
Well, Merry Christmas, church. Are you guys getting in the season? Getting in the mood of the season? I wore this today. I know, isn't it amazing? Well, Merry Christmas to you all. Welcome to church. My name is Bill. Well, as we enter the month of December, again, we focus on that one event that changed the course of history as we know it, and that is the birth of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago in a little town known as Bethlehem. Bethlehem, or Bethlehem meaning the house of bread. And from the bread from heaven came to the house of bread, and he entered the world on our behalf. This is the heart of Christianity. Die to yourself, enthrone Christ, give your life away in service while you can because life is short. God has called you to do the unthinkable. As the world seeks to save its life, you lose it. You give it away for the sake of the gospel to win as many as you can to Christ before the Lord calls you home. And today we continue in our study in our look at the birth of that wonderful Savior born 2,000 years ago. Well, on March 29, 2015, National Geographic Channel premiered its adaptation of Bill O'Reilly's book called Killing Jesus. And at that time, 3.7 million viewers viewed in, the channel's biggest audience in its history. CNN hosted a similar show called Finding Jesus, and this was just last year, and it too had very impressive rating numbers. At about the same time last year, Google searches of the name Jesus Christ were up 53%. What do all these numbers mean? Well, they tell us that Jesus is still very relevant in the minds of many Americans. Jesus is still relevant. 2,000 years after he came into this world, he is still very relevant. Amazingly, in 2015, the Barter Research Group did a study, and they found that 92% of American adults say that Jesus Christ was a real historical person who actually lived. In other words, there's not a doubt to the fact that there was a man named Jesus, and he walked upon this earth. Even amongst millennials, that number is still pretty high, 87% of millennials believe that Jesus was a real historical person. Now, while the historicity of Jesus may not be in question for most Americans, his divinity is another question. Barna found that only around 55% of American adults believe that Jesus was divine. In other words, that he was God. And of course, that number drops with the younger demographic. The millennials are right around 48%. That's a generous number too, by the way. 35% were certain that he was God. The other were all uncertain. So that, even that number 48 is a little bit generous. According to further Barna research in 2015, about half of Americans, 52%, agree that while Jesus lived on earth, he committed sins. That Jesus committed sin. Half of Americans believe that Jesus committed sins. And of course, that number goes up with millennials. Almost 60%, six out of 10 millennials believe that while he was on earth, Jesus committed sins or uh, didn't do God's will perfectly. So what does this mean? Well, it appears that for many Americans, Jesus was a good man, but a flawed man. He was a good man, but a flawed man. Jesus was morally pious, but not morally perfect in the minds of many Americans. But folks, here's why this is important. Here's why this is critically important. If Jesus wasn't the sinless, unblemished son of God, then your sins and my sins have not been forgiven. It just comes down to that. If Jesus wasn't the sinless son of God, then you are still in your sins and you are going to be held accountable for your sins. Many of us know this verse, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that is why in the Old Testament, God prescribed animal sacrifices. But not just any type of animal could be sacrificed. You know what type of animal had to be sacrificed. It was a male goat or sheep that was flawless, that was unblemished. Exodus says this, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So in the Old Testament, the lamb without blemish, listen to this, was a temporary covering of sins. Now notice I use the word temporary. All of the Old Testament sacrifices were temporary in nature and were pointing forward to the day that God would deal with our sin 
permanently. He would deal with it permanently. And so that is exactly why God had to send a sinless, unblemished sacrifice into this world. That is why it was so imperative that Jesus be sinless, because he was going to die in your place and in my place, because only the spotless blood of the Son of God could permanently atone for sins. The Old Testament sacrifices were a lot like duct tape, right? They held things together for a while, but ultimately, a more permanent solution was needed. Now, let's be honest. How many of you use duct tape to fix things? We do. It's a wonder product. It's an amazing product. No kidding. I saw a guy on the internet who built a plane out of duct tape. Did you see this? A real plane, a little Cessna. He built a Cessna out of duct tape, and it flew. It worked. Unbelievably, it worked. Duct tape is an amazing product, but the truth is, none of us want to fly in a plane made of duct tape, right? Who, who, who wants to get in a plane made of duct tape? It's nice to watch on the internet, and it was fun that he did it. I'm not getting in that plane. I'm not getting in that plane. Well, in the same way, the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament served a temporary purpose, but they are not something we ultimately want to put our trust in. They're like a plane made out of duct tape. It's a novelty. It's nice. It's intriguing, but I'm not going to put my trust there. We need something better, stronger, more permanent. We need something or someone who's led a perfect life to stand in our place, who can permanently and forever forgive our sins. Folks, it is amazing to me just how quickly people are willing to abandon the doctrine of the sinlessness of Christ, as if it had no real implications for their lives, when in fact the sinlessness of Christ has massive implications for our lives because without it, we have absolutely no hope of eternal life whatsoever. Once we have conceded on this point, we have conceded everything, right? Have you ever been in a situation where you knew, if I concede this point, I've conceded everything? Yes, you've all been there, right? Whether they're in business negotiations or a relationship you're in, you're like, or maybe in raising kids, you know, if I concede this to my child, it's over, right? Why, no one understand this. If we concede as Christians, if we concede this point, we have conceded everything. So let's put it to the test. Was Jesus truly sinless? Was Jesus truly sinless? Well, I can tell you at least one person who thought he was sinless. That was Jesus himself. Church, hear the word of God. Hear the word of God from the Savior's mouth. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Let me just stop right there. Jesus is basically saying, anything that comes out of the Father's mouth is exactly what comes out of my mouth. I only speak what I have been taught, and I always speak what I have been taught. And He who sent me is with me. And he has not left me alone. Now listen to this. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Truly unbelievable. It's a pretty bold statement. I always do the things that are pleasing to God. Folks, there is not a person in the history of the world that would dare make such a claim. Except one. A man by the name of Jesus born 2,000 years ago in a manger. He made that claim. Listen, folks, you can say that Jesus was either arrogant, ignorant, or insane in making a claim like this, but there is no denying he made claims like this on more than one occasion. And he made them publicly, incidentally, for everyone to see. Look at what verse 30 says. And he was, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many believed in him. The crowds must have had a level, level of credibility with what Jesus, when he said this, because they put their trust in him. They must have seen in his life godliness, holiness, righteousness, because he goes, I always do the will of the Father, and the crowd goes, yes, we believe in you. They trusted in him right then as he spoke those words. Why? Because they saw in him righteousness. They saw in him holiness. Folks, none of the Old Testament prophets ever uttered anything close to this. Even King David, a man who was a man after God's own heart. This is how the Bible describes David. A man after God's own heart. Read the Psalms. David, time and again throughout the Psalms, 
expresses his sins, expresses his faults. He has no problem saying, even though I'm a man after God's own heart, I am a flawless man after God's own heart. But with Christ, there is no flawlessness. Christ is truly the man after God's own heart. He is truly, let me say this, the man with God's heart because he is God in the flesh, the sinless son of God. Rather, in the Old Testament, when we look to the Old Testament, whether it's David or anyone else, we see time and again a unified voice of the prophets and the godly men that went before Jesus, that came before Jesus, all saying the same thing, that when the Messiah comes, he would be innocent. He would be innocent, pure, holy, and faithful in every way. Hear the words of Isaiah. Church, hear the words of Isaiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And then Isaiah adds these words, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. That this passage is talking about Jesus is clear from the fact that he, Jesus, was led as a lamb to the slaughter, never once opening his mouth to defend himself. This is a perfect description of Jesus. And yet here we are 700 years before the time of Christ. Isaiah says, when God sends the Messiah... He's going to be abused. He's going to be mocked. He's not going to defend himself, but no one understand this. He's innocent in every way. There is no violence in his life. There is no deceit in his mouth. He is a pure and holy offering. This is who the Messiah is. Psalm 16, it's a messianic psalm, says this, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy one see corruption. This is a messianic psalm. It's referring to Christ's resurrection. Christ would not be abandoned to the grave. He would be resurrected. But notice, you will not abandon your holy one. The holy one will not be abandoned to the grave. Truly, truly incredible. By the way, some of your passages say faithful one. If you, depending on what Bible you're looking in, you, you won't abandon your faithful one and your holy one to the grave. It doesn't matter. Christ is both faithful and holy in every way. What about the angels in heaven? They came proclaiming the birth of the Messiah. Here's what they had to say. And the angel answered her, that is Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy and then this is added, the Son of God. He will be the Holy Son of God. Folks, here is why this is important. Because some of you here today are exhausted. You're exhausted. And I'm talking to both Christians and the non-Christians. If you're not a Christian here, I'm talking to you. But if you are a Christian, I am talking to you as well. And the reason you're exhausted is because instead of fully trusting in the sinless blood of Christ on a daily basis, an hourly basis, a minute-by-minute -minute basis, you're still trusting in some way, shape, or form in yourself. I've shared this before. True story. I got saved at age 16, 17, right before my junior year in high school. I fell in love with the Lord, and God opened my eyes, put a new heart in me. I was in love with God. But as I went off to college, I began to doubt that Christ and what he did for me was totally sufficient. So I, I said to myself, I'm going to start fixing the things that I've done in the past. I'm going to start fixing the mistakes I've made in the past. And so little by little, I would find things and I'd go, oh, I think I offended that person or I messed up here. Let me go back and try to fix it. And just as soon as I went back to try to fix it and it was unfixable, there was a hundred other things that I saw on the horizon that needed fixing. And I literally wore myself down trying to fix all the stuff that I had done wrong. I was a Christian, yes, but I was exhausted. And I needed to rest in the finished work of Christ. I needed to trust that that sinless sacrifice on my behalf set me free from a life in which I had to try to fix everything. You know the verse that set me free? 
And I've shared this before, but I want to read it again. It's not in your notes. I want to share this with you. It's Romans 4 or 5, and it says this, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If you're here today and you've been trying to work out your, work for your salvation, if you're here today and you've been trying to lead that good enough life, here's the news, you can't. You cannot lead a good enough life, no matter how hard you try, and you cannot fix the mistakes that you've made in your past. They're unfixable and they're innumerable. Go try to fix one and you'll see a hundred more. Here's what you need to do. You trust in Christ. You trust in that sinless, unblemished sacrifice that was sent into the world for you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, it's the best news you'll ever hear. Christ is sufficient and will forgive you of your every sin. And if you're here today and you're a Christian and you've been running around trying to do things like I did, trying to fix everything, stop. Rest. That's why Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. The day that I rested in Christ as a Christian was the most glorious. It was like a second rebirth. I had been set free because Christ lived the life that I couldn't. But let's go on. Let's get back to this thing. Was Christ truly sinless? What about those who were closest to Jesus? What did they have to say? Well, here's what Peter had to say, the disciple of Jesus. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. Peter is referring back to the Old Testament sacrifices, and he's going, you know all those Old Testament sacrifices? They were like duct tape. They were temporary in nature. You don't want to put your trust in them ultimately. They hold things together for a little bit, but the permanent solution has come, and it is Jesus Christ. He is the precious lamb without blemish sent by God into the world. John, who was the closest of all of Jesus' disciples, he was the one whom Jesus loved, said this, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. Those closest to Jesus were most adamant about Jesus. He was sinless. What about the writer of the book of Hebrews? For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Is that not good news? Folks, the testimony of Christianity is completely radical. Because unlike all the other world religions that are following fallible men, you and I are not. We are following the God-man. And by the way, Jesus had to be fully God and fully man because he was the mediator between God and men. He's representing two parties. He's representing God and he's representing mankind. And to do that, he must be fully God and fully man, which he was. You are following somebody that is completely unique in the history of the world. To compare him to any other religious leader is a complete insult. He is the God-man, the sinless Son of God sent into the world to atone for our sins. Amen? This is, this is the God you follow. This is the Messiah that you proclaim. Don't be ashamed of it. You are going to run into a lot of people, I guarantee you. And it's going to happen this Christmas because you're going to be spending time with family members and the topic of Jesus is going to come up, and they're going to go, yeah, Jesus was a good guy. He was a lot like everybody else. No, he's not. I'm sorry, but the gospel I proclaim isn't that Jesus was like everybody else. The gospel that I proclaim is that he was completely separate from everyone else. He was the holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, Messiah sent into the world. This is the God that you and I follow. That's what I call, by the way, an impeccable resume, right? That's an impeccable resume. Those that knew Jesus intimately were also the most adamant. They declared his sinlessness. What is interesting to me that Jesus even challenged those in his generation, both friend and foe, to point out his sin. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? I'm telling you the truth. Why don't you believe me? Of course, there were those who did believe in Jesus when he proclaimed his innocence, but there were others who hardened their heart. And if you're here today and you've had a hard heart towards God and you've been keeping Jesus at a distance because you don't believe who he said he was, today's the day to soften your heart. Today is the day of salvation. My hope is that the scriptures speak to you and that you have, 
you have surpassing confidence that God sent his one and only son, sinless in every way, pure, to die in your place, to live the life you couldn't lead, and to die in your place for your sins. But real quick, let's forget about Jesus. Let's forget about his friends and his disciples. Surely if anybody could accuse Jesus of wrongdoing, it was his enemies. But what do his enemies have to say about Jesus? This is perhaps one of the most fascinating things in all of scriptures. Just minutes after betraying Jesus, Judas declares his innocence. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. The betrayer himself declares Jesus to be innocent. Remember, Judas was with Jesus three solid years. He saw Jesus behind closed doors. If anybody could have said, this guy lost his cool, this guy blew it, this guy messed up, it was Judas. But here he is, just minutes after betraying Jesus, just moments after doing it, he says, no, he's innocent. I messed up. Consider Pilate. Pilate said this to the crowds of people that came wanting to see Jesus' blood. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Even Pilate, a man who was not a believer, not one that even loved the Lord, an impartial, ungodly judge, declared Jesus to be innocent. Fascinatingly enough, When this all went down, remember Pilate's wife, who historically, it doesn't say her name in the Bible, but historically they say her name was Claudia. Claudia had a dream, and she sent word to her husband, Pilate, and said this, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife, history says her name was Claudia, sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in a dream. I think the reason she suffered was because she saw Jesus as just that, righteous. And her own sin is exposed by the righteousness of Christ. And when the righteousness of Christ exposes our sins, we either confess them or we hide from them. And she was suffering, I think, because she was exposed to the righteousness of Christ. Truly interesting. We talked about angels and what they had to say about Jesus. What about their counterparts, demons? What do the demons have to say about Christ? Well, you know, Luke chapter four. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, you have come to destroy us. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Remember what the angels came proclaiming to Mary? He will be called holy. He will be called the son of God. Both angels, the angelic forces, and the demonic forces proclaim the same message. Jesus is the holy one, the son of God, the unblemished sacrifice set into the world to die for sins. And here's the day, if you're here today and you're unsure about who Jesus is, and I'm sure in a room this size with this many people, some of you have come in here and you're not sure. Did Jesus really lead a sinless life? Did he really die in my place? If you're doubting that, I want to challenge you to change your position today. I want to challenge you to change your position today. Perhaps you're here today and you're a Christian and you've struggled with this. Trust me, a lot of Christians struggle. Is it possible that there was truly a sinless man sent into the world to die for me? I want to challenge you to change your position and to be confident that Jesus is who he says he was. There's actually a really famous story in the Bible about someone who rethought his position concerning the innocence of Christ. And it's a story that I want to tell to you. As you remember, there were two thieves crucified next to Jesus. And when they went up on the cross, they were both hurling insults at him. And this is recorded in Matthew chapter 27. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now listen to this, verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Listen, folks, this is fascinating. Both of the thieves go up onto the cross mocking Jesus mocking him. 
But at some point, while they were hanging on the cross, one of the thieves began to see the truth. He began to rethink his position, and I don't know why. What did he see in Jesus as Jesus hung on the cross? He saw something. Was it that Jesus didn't fire back or accuse his people? Was it that he said, forgive them because they not know what they do? Was it just Jesus hanging there and the way that he hung there that changed this man's mind? I do not know. But at some point, the thief on the cross did the most amazing thing. He declares his own guilt and then he declares the innocence of Christ. And it says this, but the other robber, but the other rebuked him. This is the one robber kept mocking Jesus and the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. The thief on the cross does two very important things. He confesses his own guilt and he declares the innocence of Christ. Folks, that is a sign of a heart that has been humbled in the right way. That is the sign of a heart that has been humbled in the right way. That is a sign of a heart in which salvation is now shining. And of course, the passage goes on to say this. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Folks, you know what Jesus does with the person who humbles his heart and puts their trust in him as the sinless son of God who died for their sins? He forgives them of their every sin and he offers them eternal life in paradise. It doesn't matter how messed up your life might be or how many mistakes you might have made. No one understand this. It is never too late to trust in Christ as your savior. And the thief on the cross is the perfect example of that. With his dying breath, he declares, I am a sinner. Jesus, sinless son of God, save me. And Jesus says, you're saved. You're saved. This is what God does with the person who humbles their heart and trusts in him. If you're not a Christian here today, I wanna to encourage you to trust Christ as your Lord and your savior. It's as simple as doing what the thief on the cross did, confessing your sins and crying out to him and trusting in him. And after this service, we have a prayer tent out on the plaza. You don't even have to come up here. Just go out there. We got prayer people there. They will pray with you. Now let me talk to those of you who are Christians. As you enter this holiday season, you're gonna be spending time with a lot of non-Christians. They're gonna be your friends and your relatives and so on and so forth. Don't be ashamed of this gospel. Do not be ashamed of this gospel. You stand up and you proclaim with all confidence that Jesus Christ is the sinless son of God who came into this world to die for sins. When your friends and relatives wanna make Jesus equal to everyone else, you stand strong and you exalt him as it says, you exalt him above the highest heavens, amen? This is what you do. Here's what I want you to do. Some of you, if you feel led, I want you to, you know who you're gonna be spending Christmas with this Christmas, and you know that they're not saved. We have a prayer wall out there. Write their name and put it on that prayer wall so we can pray with you for them. It'll take you two seconds on your way out. Just stop by the prayer wall, write the person's name, put it on there, and we will pray for them. And again, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you stop by that tent and just walk up to somebody and say, I want to be a Christian. I want to believe in this Jesus who died for my sins, the innocent son of God, and you can receive him today. Let's pray. Well, gracious Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you, God, that at this time we celebrate the most wonderful gift ever given, that is your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you, Father, that you sent him into the world. We thank you, Father, that he resisted temptation. He prayed for his disciples and he prayed for us. God, make us bold with this message. Jesus is not like everyone else. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the sinless Son of God, the, the, the Lamb without blemish. Make us bold with this gospel. Let us proclaim it with confidence. And Lord, let us proclaim it with expectation. And we pray, God, for those in our family, at our places of work, in our neighborhoods who don't know you, those people that we've been trying to share with and trying to live a godly life for. God, we pray for their salvation. We pray that you would change their hearts and that they would come to see as we have seen that Jesus is who he claimed to be. So Father, we love you. 
we thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, our Savior. And the church said, amen, amen. Joyful and strong
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.